Now, James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, grew up with him, shared a room with him, sat at the table with him, played games with him, no doubt. And he has that unique insight, perhaps, into what Jesus would have us do. Why is he writing to us? Well, he's writing to explain to us how we should live the Christian life, what the Christian life actually means day to day, what the Christian life means in practice, and he is writing to believers that are scattered all over the known world, and they're facing trials and tests of every description, and particularly the tests of faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and how you work that out in practice? And as we now come in our series to the central part of the letter of James, we're immediately confronted with a major test. So Bethan has read those verses to us. Make sure you have them in front of you and let's pray as we come to think about them together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a living word. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you hear your word and we must do your word. And we pray tonight as we consider these very penetrating verses that really expose our motives, our inner heart, we pray that you will speak and enable enable us to live in this way for the Lord Jesus Christ. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now the passage, if you like, has four movements. kind of goes round in a circle and ends really where it begins. And the first movement you'll find in the first verse. And essentially in this first verse, you've got, if you like, the banner headline for this evening's lesson. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version because I think it, is, it helps us to understand better what James is saying. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That word partiality is a little bit better than favoritism, as we'll see as we go through. So if you're a Christian here this morning, sorry, this evening, it's, it's the temperature, you know. I, I did put on a woolly jumper. I didn't know that the heating had gone, but uh, if I do come out with strange words, it'll be the cold, I think. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have this evening... Oh, it's either that or it's early onset. I don't know what it is. If you're a Christian here this evening, you have faith. And faith is a gift from the Lord of glory. You see him, you love him, you put your whole trust in him for your standing with God, the acceptance of your prayers, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, salvation to and through death, into eternity you rely on Christ. You put your whole trust On him. Now, says James, that is the faith I am talking about. You have this faith from and in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And it was from glory that Jesus came. And this point is very important as we go through our verses. He is infinitely and eternally God, but he came from glory to this world, to this sinful and fallen world. And he took upon himself our nature. He became a man amongst us. And that's what you must keep in mind, says James, while I talk to you, because you have faith in this Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. Now, in this same heart, 
The same heart that you have faith in this Lord of glory, you must not show partiality. That is treating people in different ways according to their outward appearance or their worldly advantages. And the glorious gift of faith, says James, should never be found hand in hand with partiality. And the world in which we live puts value on people all the time and partiality is bringing that value system into the Christian congregation. And that is what James is warning us against. It is actually to deny our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and it has no place in the heart where there is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now that really is in a nutshell the lesson for this evening. That's the first movement. Now the movements are, are different lengths, so the sermon might be slightly more than 15 minutes. The second movement is in verses 2 to 3, as James ex, ex, explains, moves on in his argument. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. See, for 400 years, Christians had no church buildings. So they gathered where they could. They gathered in homes. They gathered in the open air. They gathered in the porches of the temple. And... On that occasion, maybe it's in a home, it might be fairly crowded, two very different people come into the congregation. They're strangers, they don't know where to sit, they're not familiar with the layout, and they need one of the members to find them a place to sit. Now, one stranger is well-dressed, literally gold-fingered. Well-spoken, appears at least to be well-off, this person is ushered into a good seat. Literally, please set, sit here, it's an excellent seat. The other poor man, a beggar, filthy, tatty, smelly, obviously poor as a church mouse, has to stand or at best squat on a stool, one in rings, the other in rags, why the different treatment? Well, one looks important, the other, well, he's just in the way and he's really quite an embarrassment. It is to do with looks and how you look at people. And there are two evils here. First of all, fussing and pandering to the apparently rich and influential person. And then the abuse of the person who appears poor and of no social standing. Now, James doesn't reduce everything down to one level. It's quite right that if an elderly or disabled person comes into our congregation, we get up, we give them a seat. If Her Majesty the Queen came in, we would show the monarch due respect and let her have a seat, a good seat, when she enters. We would be obeying the Bible. You recognize the actual dignity of the person, that's fine, but it's another thing completely to look someone up and down when they come in and make a judgment about them. It's easy, says James, when a well-heeled person comes in to think, well, they can join the church, they can help, they can support, they can give, we pay them attention. Now, James's illustration is practical, it's timeless. Let's try and think of how it might affect you and me here at CEC. 
Okay, now we know how we need to raise our game on welcoming new people. In the prayer news this week that came out on Friday, we read, as we continue to have many newcomers coming into the church, let's make serving and welcoming them into our lives a priority. That is something we are concerned to do and increase our effectiveness. So imagine you're on the welcome team or you're standing there by the door and a family come in. Well-dressed, smart, smart but casual, of course. Children, they're very bonny, they smile at you coyly. And right, let's find them, a, this is a new family, let's find them a place where they can see the band because we're really pleased with our band. We want them to see sort of Dave Sims, we want them to hear the trumpet. Let's find them a seat. And I'm so pleased Daft's preaching and not that boring Andrew Smith. Okay, so we immediately look at them and make a judgment. Then a woman, or it might be a man, comes in with a couple of children who are squawking and they don't want to be there. She has he may have, doesn't really matter whether it's a man or a woman, very interesting facial piercings and a whopping great big Iron Maiden tattoo on her back with the worst version of Eddie you could possibly imagine. If you know anything about Iron Maiden, it's a heavy metal band and they have an emblem and it's not very nice. And we look at them. Well, it's probably best to sit them over there towards the back because, well and we make a judgment about them. We, if you show special attention how you look at the family and immediately make a judgment. So do we from time to time allow ourselves to be led by what the world thinks? What the world thinks is good, who the world thinks are nice people. And that's what James is getting at. He says, you profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. The one who, even though he is the Lord of glory, lived among people without fear or favour, unaffected by what they looked like, where they'd come from, and certainly wasn't bothered by their social standing. So that's the second movement, this rich illustration of these two individuals that come into the congregation and you show partiality. And it might be just a look, it might be something that clicks in your mind, but you've done it. You've judged them based on the value systems of the world that have crept into the Christian congregation. It's the third movement we see in verses 4 to 7. And here James gives us three very clear reasons why this is wrong. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Look at verse 4. If you judge and give room for evil thoughts, you are not following the Lord Jesus. You're making distinctions, he says, you're making distinctions on the basis of what people are in the world and what the world thinks about them. You've taken it upon yourself to pronounce who is worthy and who isn't worthy. You've made yourself a judge and you've used an ungodly set of values. One old writer said, he whose eye is filled with Christ never sees what kind of coat a man has got on. And Paul says, when he had to put the Corinthian church in their place, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And the Lord Jesus is the judge. So how do we accept others? Our check is this. How does Jesus accept them? 
How do we act towards them? Our check is this. How does Jesus act towards them? And if you read through the Gospels, you will see that Jesus makes a glorious habit of going to those that you would least expect him to and that you and I probably wouldn't go to. So all of our values, all our priorities, all our activities must be governed by that glory that Jesus plays in his person, displays in his person, his work, his behavior. Now, Peter came to this. He had his own set of issues of partiality to, to deal with on, on Gentiles coming into the church. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So that isn't what's happening here, says James. Mr. Splendid comes in. People do the first thing that comes into their mind. They make a value judgment. They haven't listened to the Father's voice. They haven't listened to and applied God's word, and that is wrong. Now, the second reason he gives is in verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Listen, my beloved. Listen, he says. God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he's promised to them. And he is talking about poor people. Now we might think, well, he means poor in spirit. As Jesus spoke about, blessed are those who who are poor in spirit. That's not what he means. It is poverty as the world understands poverty. It is poor people as you and I understand the term poor people. So if you or I insult the poor, dishonor the poor, discriminate against the poor, we contradict the mind of God and we deny our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to just think about this for a moment. Because when we looked at chapter 1, we could see that James sympathized with the poor man wanted to bring him comfort and reassurance, wanted to bring the rich man down a peg or two. And later on, we will see his savage attacks, and they are savage, on the money makers and the money abusers. Now think of James growing up. Now he grew up in the house of Joseph. Joseph was his father. So he grew up in the household of a provincial carpenter. He looked carefully as he grew up, the way its society worked, the favor of the rich, the disadvantage of the poor. He had a real understanding of what it was like on the ground to be poor. You may say, well, is God always on the side of the poor? Are rich people always bad and will they always persecute the poor? Should we always take the side of the poor as the poor must always be right and have all the rights? Does God only ever save poor people? Well, if so, we've had it. We really have had it because compared to the majority, by far the majority of the world's population, we are absolutely rich. And Abraham and Job were wealthy men. James mentions them with approval elsewhere in his letter. Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy. He's commended warmly. But you have to search hard in the Bible to find rich people approved of by the Lord. Paul helps us here. And he writes to the Corinthians, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. That's it. It is rare for a rich person to be converted. 
And it's overwhelmingly true that poor people love the Lord Jesus, come to faith in the Lord Jesus much more rapidly than rich people. And if you look around you today in the affluent West, you talk to people, they have no perceived need. They have no perceived need. Some people say, well, you need to preach the gospel because you're going to scratch where people itch. Trouble is, people don't itch. That's the problem. They have no need. Those who have so little are much more acutely aware of their need, their helplessness, and they are not cluttered up in the way we are. And if you read the account of the Great Awakening in England at the time of the Wesleys and George Whitfield preaching to thousands and thousands of miners, of ordinary working people, and the number of high-born, the Countess of Huntington's about the only one I can think of, minimal. Thousands and thousands of poor working-class people came to Christ under their preaching. And you listen to what's going on in other parts of the world, in South America, India, China, where poor people come to Christ much more easily than rich people. And it's interesting, when I was involved in youth work back in Horsham, back in the late 70s, early 80s, I was involved in two youth groups, one in a, a, quite a respectful village outside Horsham. We ran a youth group in the village hall, and one was in a gospel hall, a brethren hall very near to a big council estate. We had about 30 kids in each group. So the group from the village that came from pretty well-off homes, you could not please them for love nor money. Whatever activities you put on, it just it, it didn't work. But the kids that came from the estate, all you had to do is to stick them in the minibus and take them to Worthing and buy them chips, and they absolutely loved it. And in that period of about five, six, seven years, a handful were converted to Christ and they all came from the council estate. Now, of course, God is sovereign. He saves who he will. But there is a distinct pattern. He's chosen ordinary people at the bottom rung of the ladder to be heirs of the kingdom. That's what God has promised, not to the world's elite, but to those who love him. And most of the people who love the Lord are ordinary, straightforward, non-status, non-influential people. The major event of the Old Testament is God rescuing slaves. It's in God's very nature to love the poor, the downtrodden, the helpless. They are his major priority. And he says that in Deuteronomy, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the alien, giving him food and clothing, and you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. It's always been the case that the Lord's people are mostly less well off and become prey for the stronger, richer, more ruthless forces and of course, the Lord Jesus became poor. He was born in a stable, not in the palace. We know that. And James says, you have dishonored the poor. In other words, you are behaving in exactly the opposite way to God. And to behave in the opposite way to God is ungodly. It's wrong and it's a sin. Then James points out to his readers that it's the rich that's causing them so much trouble. Why on earth then would you show them favoritism? It's a great irony. 
It's the rich and influential people in society where these Christians are trying to live and work and work out their faith that are literally blaspheming and slandering the noble and lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the common sense in your behavior, he says. And that brings us to the third reason why these things are wrong in verses 6 and 7. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you read church history, who are the persecutors of the Christian church? Who does most damage to the Christian church down through the years? In the Acts, it was the Sadducees, it was the Jewish elite. Then the influential men of the city, the noble women, the magistrates, the governors, those who were making money. The businessman, Ephesus, the Philippi Chamber of Commerce, you see that all the time. People who've got influence, status, are the chief persecutors of the Christian church. And James says, it's that group of people, it's that group of people that you have singled out for particular attention that you have said are worthy of a special welcome. I came across in my reading this week a really amusing quotation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a preacher in London uh, in the 19th century and he was preaching and people were coming and they were being saved. Now the churchmen and the elite of the city of London were very, very critical of what was going on at New Park Street, which was the church before the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And this is what they said, they wrote into the papers vitriolically about Spurgeon. They said, they called his preaching a prostitution of the pulpit, the vulgar colloquial varied by rant in which the solemn mysteries of our holy religion are by him rudely, roughly and impiously handled. Oratorical tricks, daring utterances, coarse sentiments, a claptrap style, insolence so unblushing, intellect so feeble, flippancy so ostentatious and manners so rude, in short, pulpit buffoonery. Now, they complained that the crowds who so enthusiastically came to hear this, as they call it, execrable display of pulpit mountebankism consists of people who are not in the habit of frequenting a place of worship. So the churchmen of the City of London in those days heavily criticized the great preacher of the gospel and, and, and completely slandered his pulpit style because people were coming to church who they, shouldn't, they expected shouldn't come. No place for these people in a place of worship. And if we think about who's oppressing the Christian church today, well, philosophers, entertainers, politicians, journalists, military governments, powerful, atheistic, anti-Christian regimes. But in our own land, think what Tim Farron went through as leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, the problems he had, the journalists like hyenas ripping him apart over what he was trying to say about gay sex. And even on Friday... I read this in my newsfeed. Labour leadership contender Rebecca Long-Bailey has said she disagrees with the law allowing abortion after 24 weeks on the grounds of disability. The MP, who officially launches her campaign later, said it was her personal view, not a policy position. Her spokesman said she unequivocally supports a woman's right to choose. Leadership rivals Lisa Nandy and Jess Phillips backed a call to defend and extend reproductive rights. Whatever that means... 
something Mrs Long-Bailey has now also done. Emily Thornbury highlighted her support for the decriminalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland at her leadership campaign launch. Now, they immediately picked up on, on, on that particular view that Rebecca Long-Bailey, as a practising Catholic, has. Again, like vultures on a carcass. Blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong, says James. Dragging Christ's name through the mud. And if you look at entertainment on Amazon Prime and now on BBC, there's this drama about a, a, a good angel and a black angel, and it says, angel from heaven, angel from hell respectively, have grown rather fond of the earth, so it's terrible news that it's about to end, and apparently it's a, a major success as a drama. Now, I don't think it honours the name of the Lord of glory, the name of the living God, it'd be dragged through the mud, the name of the judge of the world, dragged through the mud, our precious saviour, dragged through the mud. It's these very people, says James, the elite, the philosophers, the intellectuals, the politicians, the rulers, the governors that you want to give special attention to. So, we've seen this evening's lesson at the beginning. We've seen the example that James uses of the poor man and the rich man, and we've seen three reasons why it's wrong to be partial. Now, when all said and done, there will still be believers who don't take this seriously. Come on, James, there are far more important things to do. I think you're really making a bit of a fuss about nothing here. There are much bigger issues than this question we're thinking about this evening, surely. So what James done, what he now does in his fourth movement, in verses 8 to 13, he shows us why this subject must be taken seriously. And we're homing in on something James refers to as the royal law. Verse 8 talks about a royal law. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. Now, straight away, we can see this isn't a secondary issue. It's not something we can say, well, this is no big deal. Not something we can put to one side and tackle later. He says, if you're so interested in status, if you're so interested in what people think, listen to a royal law. You want status? Well, I'll give you status, the king and the royal law that he gives. If you're so interested in people who are, are, are high in society, then listen to a royal law from the king. And between the king and those in his kingdom, we have a royal law that tells us how to do right. It says in verse 9, You show partiality, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So every time I don't keep this royal law and show partiality, I sin. Even whenever I don't love the poor person as I love myself, every time I make a distinction based on worldly values, I break the royal law. Somebody says, well, okay, I can see that, but surely I'm doing all right in other areas. I might need to work on this, but I am a good person. I am trying to live out the Bible. I am trying to do what's right. Listen, says James, you face up to your guilt. You can't pick and choose which laws you're going to keep because to break one is to break all. For whoever keeps the whole law, in verse 10, and stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you'll become a lawbreaker. So if you go out and you look at the moon, and when it's a new moon, you just see a sliver, don't you? A, a, very, a very fine crescent. But that's the moon. 
And you know the moon is there, even though you're only looking at one small part of it. And that's like the law. You may see one part, but the whole law is there. You, the law is a pane of glass, not a pile of stones. You, 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 you can take a stone away from the pile of stones, and it still remains a pile of stones. You lob one of those stones at a pane of glass, it completely shatters and fragments. You might only hit it in one place, in the corner, and the whole thing breaks. That's basically what James is saying. The law of God is like glass. A break at one point can't be contained. The cracking, the crazing spreads over the whole area. Because every part of the law you see represents an aspect of God's character. It's a whole. To say one part of the law is perhaps less important than the other is to say some aspect of the character of God is not so important as another. And of course that's not true. And I'm so glad that the king of love who my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never, has given me this law to tell me how I should live in his kingdom. And verse 12 says the law will always give freedom. It's the law of liberty, the law of freedom. And it sounds odd because law and freedom, they don't really go together, do they? Now I'm no sportsman and anybody who knows me here will know that. I, I really am not, but I know that football only works if you play by the rules. That's what makes the game the game. If I change the size of the pitch, if I make the goalpost shaped like an H, then it's no longer football. When you pass your driving test, it's one of the most liberating things you will ever do. But then you are confronted with a whole bag of rules and laws of the road, but you get in your car, you drive out on the road, and because there are rules, and because you do drive on the left, and because you do um, acknowledge the lights and, and the road signs, you, are, you have the freedom to drive throughout the whole of the country. And some of us may have been in situations, perhaps not driving, but passengers, where there are no rules of the road, and that is not freedom, that is absolute chaos. Those of you who are familiar with the great works of Harry Potter may know of house elves. Now, Dobby was a house elf, and a house elf um, is, um, has to obey his master. He, he's held in bondage to his master. He can only be released if his master gives him an item of clothing. Then he's free. He's a liberated slave. <coughs> and Dobby is in the household of the evil Malfoys. And Harry Potter finds a sock of the Malfoys, gives it to Dobby, and Dobby is released from bondage, from slavery. And throughout the rest of the canon of Harry Potter, Dobby cannot do enough for Harry Potter, who rescued him and who saved him. So he was in bondage to this family, now he's released. But the law of love, the law of freedom, if you like, works in him. So he's always there to serve and to help Harry Potter. If you don't know Harry Potter, I'm sorry. The illustration might fall flat, but for those of you who do, you get the point. You imagine a world where everyone loves God with all their heart, where everyone has the right view of God, where no one uses the name of God cheaply, where every child obeys his or her parents, where there's no adultery, no murder, no envying. Nobody wants what somebody else has got. It will be heaven, it will be freedom, it will be wonderful. It would be the freest place imaginable because the law of God would have been kept. The law of God is good and it gives freedom. 
And the law of God is summarized by the Lord Jesus. Love God, love your neighbor. You love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you want to be treated as a Christian here at CEC? Then treat others that way, and if you do that, says James, you will do well. What sort of welcome do you want to receive as you perhaps go into a new church for the first time? Well, then that's the kind of welcome that you give. What kind of handshake would you like to receive? What kind of expression would you like to see on the face of the person that welcomes you? What kind of conversation do you want to have? What kind of hospitality would you like to enjoy? What kind of church members do you want to have around you or side by side praying with you will be that person? But it goes much further than that. It's not just about the family of God, is it? Because that's not really that difficult to do what I've just said. We are asked to love our neighbours as ourselves. And this goes further than those who are sitting next to you your friends, your Christian brothers and sisters. How am I to love my neighbor as myself? When I love my neighbor as myself, then his concerns become as important as mine, his needs and his condition as important as mine. I respect him as I want to be respected myself. I'm interested in him as I would like him to be interested in me. How do we love ourselves? Not really with an emotional thrill, oh, I love me. You know, you don't love yourself like that, do you? If you do, you've got a problem. Pretty much with wholesale disapproval. I mean, we don't tend to think all that much of ourselves, so how do we love ourselves then? Well, with concern and care and attention for our own well-being, which we should do, made in the image of God and as Christ's people. I mean, when you look at your face first thing in the mirror, if you're anything like me, the word ugh comes spontaneously to mind. And yet, once I take my revolting face and try and do something with it, washing and shaving and trying to make it as presentable as nature will allow, well, in that sense, I'm loving myself. I'm taking care and giving due attention to myself in the way that I should Loving ourselves means providing that loving care and attention, and that is how you love your neighbour, whoever they are. Now, James rounds off his argument in this passage with a very strong statement. He says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Blessed are the merciful, says Jesus, for they shall obtain mercy. What does the law require of you? To show mercy. To act justly, love mercy, and walk with, humbly with your God, says Micah. And when someone, someone shows mercy, it takes the sting out of judgment. You remember the Lord Jesus, the woman caught in adultery. There she was, all the men around her. You who have no sin cast the first stone. They fade away into the background. He looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now that is mercy. Wonderful mercy that trumps judgment, takes the sting out of it. People who are merciful prove they've received mercy. So our values come from the word and not from the world. We hear the word, we hear it in our heart, deeply in our souls. We're rid of all wickedness and filthiness and self. James has told us this before. We listen to the word, we hear the Father speaking, and when we hear, we do. And think how the Saviour received you. 
and look at his mercy. And we're right back to the beginning, to the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory who came down to save sinners like me. Jesus, the true glory, came to the poorest level, identifying those outcasts, the very worst people in the society in which he lived and moved. In Matthew, we read, as Jesus went out, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Tax collector, you couldn't get much worse than them. They were collaborators, often hard and merciless and cruel, not much liked by the Romans and certainly despised by their own people. But the call of Jesus to Matthew supersedes everything. The Pharisees were truly shocked. I mean, they were. Eating with these people, Jesus condoning the way they are living. He's contaminated. But Jesus isn't contaminated, is he? These are the poor and needy. These are those to whom he has come. They are the sick that need a doctor. So if you ever feel uncomfortable in someone's presence, ask yourself, would Jesus be uncomfortable in their presence? Or would he be jumping over every obstacle to meet their needs and save them from their sins. And if we are really going to be like Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, we must do the same. Amen.